Exodus 15, starting at verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. I want you to try and picture in your mind uh, the last time you had a really spiritually significant moment. It might have been one Sunday as, as God spoke to you really powerfully through his word. It may be uh, a, at a camp or a conference. There might have been hundreds, could have even been thousands of people in that venue. And yet it felt like every single word that was spoken had been written specifically for you in your seat. It's like you've been stapled to your chair and the Spirit is speaking to you specifically. And and not just through His Word. There's going to be seasons, especially if you have the privilege of going to one of those kinds of conferences where the whole week or whatever it is, With all of the singing and the food and all the socializing, it feels like a foretaste of heaven. It's one of those spiritual mountaintop experiences. Got that thought? Now, where were you the following Monday? Or the week or so afterwards? Spiritually, in our own experience, we know what it's like to go from that mountaintop experience to what feels like the spiritual wasteland. And, and that's for all sorts of reasons. The sin struggle flares up again and leaves you feeling utterly deflated with that realization that you are still not perfect and that it is a long way to glory. Maybe there are pressures that come between that mountaintop experience and the wasteland that remind you that there are financial worries that keep you awake at night. There are family worries that keep you awake at night. There are things in your past you're anxious might catch up with you, things in your future that you're fearful about. And for all of those reasons, Sunday can feel not like the day before, but like a different world on a different planet. And, and each of us knows something of that struggle. And, and your response will be something like discouragement or doubting the reality of your Christian faith. Or perhaps, for many of us, a low groan and grumble. Why do I still not have 
dot, dot, dot. Why are they still doing dot, dot, dot? How long do I have to cope with dot, dot, dot? That's our experience, isn't it? We, we have that spiritual roller coaster of the, the mountaintop experience followed by the wasteland. And that's exactly what the Jews experience in this next section in Exodus. We've seen their mountaintop experience. They've witnessed the glory of God in the rescue at the Red Sea. And they are singing with all of the joy that they could possibly have. And for the next few weeks, God is going to test his people. And they're going to repeatedly respond by grumbling. This week is because of a lack of water. Chapter 16, they're going to be grumbling about a lack of food. Chapter 17, they're going to go back to grumbling about water again. That, this is the key lesson in this section in Exodus that is a three-week chronological period between being at the Red Sea in chapter 15 and getting to Mount Sinai in chapter 19. This is the big lesson. It's a season of testing, not to see whether they can earn their salvation. They've already been saved. <laughs> They're already on the other side of the Red Sea, safe from the Egyptians. Their salvation isn't the question. The testing is, are they going to trust God moment by moment, life struggle by life struggle, in everything he brings in their way? Because that's the key reminder that we need to have in all of this. This, this event is all led by God. It's not that they stumbled away from his plan and now they're suffering as a consequence. He is leading them towards these obstacles to grow their faith muscles. Now, if you've ever had an injury, you know that it takes time to rebuild your muscles. You can't just leave it to time, because if you don't do anything with your muscles, they continue to waste away. But it takes time to rebuild your muscles by starting to do some exercises. And if you've ever been sufficiently injured to need a physio, you know that those exercises start small. Because that's all that you can physically manage at that point. Your muscle's injured and needs to begin to slowly build up its strength. And as you get better at doing those small things, if you stick with the physio program, you build up your strength so that you can then cope with more. Now that is what is going on with the Israelites in the wilderness. This period isn't wasted time. It's really important that we see that. This period isn't wasted time. It isn't unnecessary heartache. God is deliberately leading his people to obstacles in order that, verse 25, they would test and grow their faith muscles. And he's told us why he's recorded this section of Israel's history for us today. If you flick over to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, it will appear on the screen, but if you've got it in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, Paul writes, now, now these things, speaking about Israel's history, occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got to, up to indulge in, in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We shouldn't test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes, 
And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come, meaning all of the promises of God have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we now are. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure under it. Now, if you look in the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it's called the Septuagint, the words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 that we've translated test and temptation are the same word that Moses uses in Exodus 15 to describe what God is doing to his people. So Paul's telling the New Testament church, us today, that God still tests his people. Not so we can earn our salvation, but so that we can grow in our faith. And that explains why we've got this section of Exodus in our Bibles. Why otherwise wouldn't God just jump from Exodus 15 to Exodus 19 and we get to the law? It's so that we would know that God knows our struggles. God knows that we wrestle with this same roller coaster to wasteland that the Jews did. But it doesn't stop there. And we mustn't just read it as there's an empathy in God because he knows what happens, happened in, in the Jews' history. And it's certainly not here to make us think that it's okay just to keep on struggling with things like the Jews did, because we know the history of what happened to the ethnic nation of the Jews in the Old Testament. It's here so that we would know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can grow and change so that we don't keep responding to the struggles of life the same way that they did. It's there as a warning for us so that we would know how to grow our faith muscles. The God who saves his people tests his people to grow their faith in him. That's the big lesson of the next few weeks. The God who saves his people tests his people to grow their faith in him. And we're going to see that in in three simple points this morning. Firstly, Moses warns us of a danger to be avoided because gratitude shouldn't be followed by grumbling. Now read in verse 22 that Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. Doesn't mean Moses did it on his own. He and the Israelites are all being led by God in the pillar of clouds. It's not just Moses' idea, but Moses does need to nudge them along. The verb that we've got in our English translation is led, but in the Hebrew it carries a sense of causation. And if you've got an ESV on your lap, it will say that Moses made the people leave. It's capturing that sense of Moses is driving them out. And we, we can understand why, can't we? Because if you've had one of those mountaintop experiences, you just want to keep singing and celebrating for as long as you possibly can. And here's Moses. He is nudging the people on 
Because God's people here are pilgrims. Monday always follows Sunday. So here's Moses. He's moving them on into the desert. And what happens next is no surprise to anyone. You've either read this passage a hundred times before, or even if it's the first time you've heard it read, you know what's got to happen. You've got two to three million people heading out into a desert with all of their animals. At some point, the water's going to run out, like fast. For the Jews, it takes three days. And it's not hard for us to put ourselves into their situation and understand how hard this would be. Because all of us have either been the child or have cared for the child on a long walk on a hot summer's day. And you get about three quarters of the way around and you pass the water bottle around the kids for the last time because it's all you've got. And all that's left, because you're three quarters of the way around, is you've got to push on. You've got to get to the next water supply or back to home or wherever it might be. We know that sense of, kids, we've just got to keep going. <laughs> but doing that with three million people who are in the desert, that's really, really hard. Everyone would have been straining their eyes to try and find some oasis, some water supply so that they could fill up. And as the kids are running around looking... They suddenly see this glimpse of somewhere, and you can just picture them going, running off towards this water, and they have that lovely sense of, oh, it's not a mirage, it's actually water. And they dive onto their tummies and start lapping up this water. It's gross. Moses uses the same word to describe bitter here as he did of the bitter herbs that they roasted the lamb with for the Passover. This This is gross water. You can't possibly drink it. Now, pause there before you judge the the Jews. Pause right there, because right up until this very moment, nobody has sinned. It's really important we understand that. You've got some desperately thirsty people who are in the desert seeking to provide for themselves, their kids, and their animals, and they're desperately thirsty. And God knows They're thirsty. He made them as flesh and blood. God is the one who gave us our thirst that needs to be quenched. God knows that if we don't drink, we are going to die, which means that the lesson from this story is not that God's people need to learn to suffer in silence. The goal of this text is not to give you that sense of, well, to be a Christian means you've got that stoic, silence, that stiff upper lip where you never say anything about suffering in life because because we don't say anything about suffering. It's not the lesson. Read through our Bibles. All the way through the Bibles, you have God's people, especially in the Psalms, who cry out to him in groaning and suffering because the world is broken and our lives are a mess. And that is a good and a godly thing to do. But that's not what the Israelites do. Verse 24, they grumbled against Moses, saying, well, what are we to drink? And that's when it becomes a sin struggle. Thirsty people are not sinning. Thirsty people that are crying out to God for water are not sinning. Thirsty people who grumble to somebody else because they don't want to speak to God 
are now sinning. And the grumbling happens when we stop living by faith and start living by sight. It's when all we can do is look at the circumstances that we can't control and we've excluded God from, so he can't be as part of the solution. The circumstances are all that we're thinking about and we won't bring them to God. That's when this becomes a sin struggle. He's rescued them. He's provided for them. He's promised to provide for them. But they couldn't even bring themselves to talk to him. They just complained to Moses. Now, it's, it's basically impossible when it comes to some illustrations to um, make it uh, relevant and capture the gravity of what's going on because how do you do a parallel between our sin and God? So I get that. But just picture for a minute that you get an invite to the king's coronation banquet. None of us deserve to be there. Oh, well, maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe some of you do. But I don't deserve to be there. But imagine you get an invite to the king's coronation banquet. And you know that he's going to provide for everything. He's the king. It's his banquet. You're going to be well looked after. He's had staff preparing this thing for months. And finally the day comes. And the trains are quite crowded. And security's slow. And by the time you get to the banquet itself, you're a bit grumpy, you're a bit tired, and you're hungry. And you get into the banqueting hall, and all of the plates are empty. Ah, there's a butler just there. You turn to the butler, and you start grumbling to the butler. The king is six feet away. You could speak to the king. You could trust the king who has made all of this banquet possible and has invited you in even though you don't deserve to. But you don't want to do any of that. You want to grumble to the servant, not speaking to the king and not trusting him to provide. We wouldn't dream of doing that. But that's what the Israelites did at Mara. And... And I say this gently, and first of all to myself, it's worse when we grumble against God. Because we have an even greater understanding of what he has given for us. We know that the Father sent the Son into the world to save us. If God would empty the bank of heaven to give his son to save your life, do you really think he's going to hold back on the change you need for expenses? That's what's going on here. Now, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that lesson is not hard to understand. But isn't it hard to live by? Isn't it hard when you're facing another one of those obstacles not to give in to that sim temptation of thinking God's not there, God's not interested, God's quit? And part of how we prepare for that is found in verses 25 and 26. We need to remember, secondly, the reality that testing follows triumph. Testing follows triumph. Moses 
does what all of the Israelites should have done. He cries out to God. And amazingly, God showed him a piece of wood. The Hebrews, literally a tree. So there might be some discussion about exactly what it was that Moses is looking at. The key point is, it's a piece of a tree and it's already there. (laughs) The God of heaven and earth, who knows all things, has planned the answer to their problem. And it's right there. And he Well, um, the word that we've got is showed. More literally, it's taught Moses about the wood. So there's a sense in which God is explaining to Moses what is about to happen. Now, if you read some commentators, they will say that what happened can be explained entirely naturally. Just like they would say, you can explain all the plagues naturally. So some wood has properties that absorbs impurities from water and purifies it. Apparently, uh, the pods of this tree, which is known as a moringa tree, Um, the the, the crushed seeds from that tree will purify water for you. And that's all completely true. But it doesn't explain the miraculous of what happens here, which is that Moses puts a piece of wood in this vast enough space of water to then completely and instantaneously purify it for an entire nation of people to drink. It's an enormous miracle, and it is God putting his people Verse 25, to the test. It's the first time we've seen that word since God tested Abraham by commanding him to take Isaac and offer his son as a sacrifice. It's the same word, and it's the only other time that it's used to this point in the Bible. And as God's testing his people, Alec Matea, the, the Bible writer, has a wonderful way of describing what it is God's doing. He brings us, says Alec, God brings us into situations which call for trust and the endurance and obedience that proves our trust is real. So that by the exercise of faith in the face of new challenges, our trust in him can develop and mature until we come to see that everything that happens to us is under divine supervision and brimful of divine purposes for our good. The God who saves his people tests his people to grow their faith in him. That's the lesson. And there are so many lessons that flow out of that principle that we need to keep relearning. Here are four. Firstly, don't think in the test that God has abandoned you. He's sovereignly arranged for you to be in that situation that you're thinking of in your life right now in order that you can grow in your faith in him. Secondly, when God tests his people like this, it isn't to make us fail and prove we're not his. It's the exact opposite. He's testing his people so that we would grow in our faith. It's not to disqualify, it's to equip Thirdly, we mustn't therefore expect the tests to stop. It's not like this is the experience that you only get when you're a new Christian because there's loads of stuff that you need to learn and God's got to roughen the edges on your rough diamond, uh, sorry, smooth the edges on your rough diamond uh, and then it will all stop. So you can get to 10, 20, 30 years in your Christian life and expect that everything's just going to be a smooth ride until glory. That's not how it works. God's plan is to keep growing your faith in him until the day that 
Jesus returns or you go to glory. So we're to expect those tests to keep coming. But fourthly, that doesn't mean nothing changes. Now, I know how this might be heard. You might be thinking, well, it sounds like you just get stuck at um, Groundhog Day. You know, it just keeps looping backwards and backwards and backwards. That's not what God's doing. God is incrementally building your faith muscles so that your change, so your reaction to the obstacle changes as you grow. The idea is that as you continue to be tested, you finally get to the point where you no longer question if God is going to provide, but you wonder how as you wait by faith. That's the big lesson of the Christian life. It's not that you get to a point of knowing all of the answers and never having to fear any more tests. It's that as God has built your faith muscles, your question shifts from doubt to expectation and waiting. That's how we see the heart of God's command in verse 26. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is one of those passages where commentators are not exactly sure how everything fits together. And that's okay, because we're not God. Here are the questions, and let me tell you where I land. What is the link between the ruling and instruction, the test in verse 25, and the command in verse 26? And you can read lots of commentators who will have different opinions. Was it the bitter water at Mara that's the test? Or is the test what God then commands in verse 26, which they then need to keep as they go on? Personally, I'm not sure we're meant to divide the two. I think the point of this text and this whole section of Exodus is to show us that God is testing his people by growing their faith. He does that through the circumstances in our lives. He does that by giving us clear commands that we are to follow and that having been saved, we're now called to live by. Remember, that's the key issue. It's not the people of old had to earn their salvation in a way that's now completely different. God has always and only ever saved his people by grace. We know that. If you were with us last Sunday evening, Matthew helped us think about this principle of lives that have been changed now choosing to live differently in the life of Zacchaeus. It was really, really helpful. If you missed it, please listen to it online. Matthew's key point was when Zacchaeus is brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has a completely new identity. Completely new. Which means that he goes from that sinful life of being a tax collector, extorted God's people to give away his money, to being completely different. And now Zacchaeus looks at Jesus, and Jesus isn't just his savior, he's also his Lord. Which means Zacchaeus' entire life is now going to joyfully look different. Not because he's earning his salvation, he's already been saved, he's been given the new identity, now he's living it out. And that's exactly the same for the Israelites. He's already rescued them. Now he's telling them how to live in response of his grace. 
What does he tell them? Do what is right in your eyes. No, he doesn't. Could there be a more countercultural command than do what is right in God's eyes? They're to listen to, they're to keep his commands so that God would bless them and heal them. And for all that is different between that covenant age and ours, we have that same principle today. We see that in the way that the Lord tells us that if you have been saved by the grace of God, your heart is now changed so that you long to live in obedience to God. Jesus told his disciples, John 14, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. John takes that idea when he writes his first letter. This is love for God, to keep his commands. Not because you can earn your salvation any more than the Egyptians, the Israelites could on the other side of the Red Sea. But that as your heart has been completely changed by grace and the Spirit of God is at work in your life, it is to give you new desires to live a life that brings glory to God. And one of God's great encouragements to do that is found in verse 27. Moses reminds us, thirdly and very briefly, of a future to hope for because Elim follows Mara. It's really interesting when you think about it that God changed the water at Mara so it was sweet to drink and then moves the people on to Elim to provide them with more water. Isn't that interesting? He's already given them water, and now he moves them on. I think there's at least two things that we're to see from that. Firstly, is the sufficiency of God's provision. You see that description of there being 12 springs, 12 sources of water, and 70 palm trees. I'm absolutely sure that that literally must have been true, but it's also symbolic. There are 12 tribes in Israel. There were 70 elders, leaders over Israel. The picture is not only of a sufficient provision, but of a completely sufficient provision. God says, I know your needs. I know everything about you, and I provide exactly what you need. But he's also teaching us to see that Elim follows Mara. And God knows that we need both. I was really blessed by the way that Kevin DeYoung captures this so helpfully. So this little nugget is all Kevin's wisdom. After a season of success, victory at the Red Sea, God often sends Amara because we need to be humbled. And after a season at Mara, he eventually brings us to an Elim because we need to be refreshed. We need both. And God knows that. One makes life sanctifying. The other makes life bearable. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you may feel like you've been at Mara too long. Please do not think the lesson from Exodus 15 is that you are simply to be quiet and suffer in silence. God calls us to cry out to him, to bring that suffering to him in prayer, knowing that he is the one who loves us enough that he would send his son to die for us and will therefore keep us until he brings us safely home. 
I pray. And maybe you need to grab somebody after the service and ask them to pray like after this service for you. If you can't find anybody, come and find me. I pray that God will bring you to an Elam soon because it's hard being at Mara for long. But until he does, I pray that your faith would not waver that ultimately he will take you to his eternal Elam where every Mara will be forgotten and banished. Can I just say a quick word if you're a Christian and you feel like you're in Elam right now? Praise God for that. Enjoy every moment of that blessing. But don't be surprised when he takes you to the next test. He doesn't love you less. He isn't planning on breaking you. He wants to build your trust in him. So enjoy that blessing at Elam. It is a gift from God. But don't be discouraged when the next Mara comes. And if you're not yet a Christian, can I ask you an honest question? What is your reason for hope that things would ever be better? If you look at the world through a lens of thinking we're here by an accident, it's survival of the fittest, all I need to do is keep earning more, working hard, providing for the kids, and then I'm done. Really, what, what is your hope that things would ever get better. When we read our Bibles, the Bible is so honest about the sin and the suffering and the struggle of this world, but it's honest so that it wouldn't leave us in despair. It explains the reality of how we are living so that we would turn in faith to the only hope for our souls. And it's only in Jesus that you can find that hope. <coughs> we began the beginning of our service reading from Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, <clears throat> and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's the invitation of the gospel to every single one of us who know that spiritually we are penniless and cannot earn our salvation. And Jesus says, you're the people I came for. He says in John verse, uh, chapter 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So can I plead with you this morning, if you know that your spiritual life is dry, that you're not right before God and you need to be, come to the God who says, come, not go away and get better, not just try harder and everything will be fine, come because it's not fine, it's so not fine I had to send my son into the world to die, but if you'll repent of your sin, he died for you.